All right, well, as uh, Becky said, we are uh, cracking on through our uh, Story of the Bible um, series. Um, we've only got about four or five weeks to go left of the Old Testament. We're putting pause on uh, things for next week, and um, we'll pick it up, I think, in, in two weeks' time again. We've got some other things to talk about next week. Um, so, where are we? Where are we? Today, today, we're looking at what happened after um, the monarchy was established. Um, and uh, as, we, um, as, as you might know, the church split after King Solomon. Um, and uh, yeah, so look, we're going we're gonna to look at that. But before I get into that, can we, can we pray? Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you, Lord, for your word to us, that through the power of your Holy Spirit... You illuminate uh, your word and you shape our hearts and our lives and you encourage us and you discipline us and ultimately, Lord, when we are faithful to you, you're glorified through us. And so, Lord, today as we consider how you spoke to your people all those years ago, Lord, through sending prophets to call people back to you again and again, Lord, may we ever be more mindful of what you call us to this day. May we be mindful of how you are calling us to return to you and what it is in our lives that you are calling us to turn away from. So God be with us. Open our hearts and minds, we pray. Amen. All right, so um, we are looking uh, at what happened after, uh, after King David, who we looked at last week. Uh, last week. And um, basically what happened, and I'm going to breeze through about 400 years of history um, in about two or three minutes, so uh, it's not detailed. I understand that. Um, So after David, we get Solomon, and Solomon um, is renowned for his wisdom, isn't he? And uh, we hear how Solomon had almost a heart similar to God's, that when God said to Solomon in a dream, I'll give you anything that you want. Just ask me for that. And what Solomon asked for above all else was wisdom so that he could rule God's, uh, God's people uh, with wisdom, with justice, with righteousness and holiness. And so we do see that desire in Solomon to continue on uh, living in the way that God's called them to. And of course, uh, Solomon builds the first temple. Uh, and um, you know, it's in all its glory with uh, gold and silver and wood from the far reaches of the uh, known world at that time. Um, and he dedicates it and the Lord fills it with fire and uh, he sacrifices you know, hundreds of bulls and goats and all of these things. Uh, and so we see this faithfulness in Solomon, but he doesn't continue that all through his life. Solomon uh, start, uh, declines, his, his faithfulness to God starts to decline Um, as he marries foreign wives, mostly for political purposes, making allegiances and alliances with other kingdoms. Uh, He doesn't uh, eradicate all the, what they call high places, all these altars on the mountains uh, in Israel that were places of worship. Uh, And so um, it leaves open the possibility that idols can be worshipped. And he continues to put uh, burdens on the people, taxes, um, conscripting people to not only military service, but also um, working to build uh, all the works that they're doing around. Um, and, uh, and so when Solomon dies, the kingdom's really on a knife edge. Uh, the people are feeling 
the burden of Solomon's reign, of having all these building projects, of taxes, of workmanship. Uh, And uh, King Rehoboam, uh, who comes in after him, Solomon's son, has two options before him. And and the decision that he makes um, will will really matter at this time. And he goes to his advisors and said, what should I do? And the advisors who are with Solomon say, hey, alleviate the taxes and then the people will be yours forever. Basically, you'll have them in your hands. And then he goes to his mates, his young friends, um, who have grown up with him. It says they grew up before him. Uh, and but basically, I feel people pleasers. You know, they wanted to make Solomon feel really good. And they say, don't, don't take away the taxes. Don't take away the burdens. Make it harder. Say, uh, my, my finger, my little finger is like, uh, like Solomon's thigh. You know, that's the kind of burden I'm going to put on you. Um, and what happens? Well, the northern tribes, ten tribes in the north part of the kingdom, don't like this. Um, don't like this at all. And so they reject him and go off with uh, King Jeroboam, who's uh, returned back from Egypt where he was in, in exile. So the kingdom has split. It splits in two. Um, the northern tribes go off um, under King Jeroboam. The southern tribes, so Judah and Benjamin, uh, remain in the south and uh, they're ruled under King Rehoboam there. Um, And as you go through the Bible, what you'll hear is the northern kingdom is called Israel, Ephraim, or Jacob, um, and the southern kingdom is called Judah. Um, Yeah, it's just pretty much just called Judah. Um, And uh, the rest, they say, uh, is history. Um, And what what happens through this consecutive uh, line of kings um, is some are faithful to God, some are unfaithful. And remember I said last week, kings are always measured up against their faithfulness to the covenant of God. That's what we hear about them in the Bible for, particularly the book of Kings. Um, that, that's what they're measured up against, and that's what really matters to the people who wrote the Bible. Uh, in 722 BC, uh, the northern kingdom is conquered by Assyria, by Assyria um, and taken off into exile. Um, And in 597, um, the southern kingdom is conquered by the empire of Babylon, um, and they're taken away into exile uh, as well. And so that's that's the time frame of the monarchy. That's that's how it continues on. Um, And uh, one important little little caveat here, though, is that as the people break, as the kingdom split, the northern kingdom creates for itself... Uh, two places of worship, because they're faced with this problem. We've split from the south, we've separated ourselves, and if we continue to go to Jerusalem to worship, then the hearts of our people are going to be swayed back to the south. They're going to want to return back to the kingdom. They're going to want to be faithful to God, because they they hold the power. They're, They're showing through the fact that they've got the temple that they're the legitimate claim to be God's people. And so King Jeroboam sets up two places of worship, one in Dan and one in Bethel. Um, it always puzzles me why they call Bethel Church Bethel Church when it's named after Bethel. But they, they go, well, what can we do to make these legitimate places of worship? And so they go, I know, we'll reach back into our history and we'll take something from there and we'll, we'll center worship around these things. And they think, I know, we'll go to our, the wilderness wanderings, because that's the center of where we were formed as a people. And let's go to Mount Sinai, where God gave the law to us. And, and, and that will legitimize these places of worship. But what do they set up? 
they set up two golden calves. Of all the things to reach back into your history and place as objects of worship, they decide to take two objects of idolatry. The golden calves being the objects that the people formed when Moses was up the mountain and bowed down and worshipped in idolatrous worship. And then they had judgment upon them. And so you can see right from the start that the north is already on this trajectory of, of idolatry, of leaving God behind, of false worship. Um, and so, uh, so, so that, that's, that's where the kingdom finds itself. Um, and we've got these two kingdoms. But the good news is, and the news that I think has been going through our story so far, is God doesn't give up. Right? God, God never gives up. Despite what his people do, despite the fact that they've split off, despite that they're going in this clearly idolatrous direction away from him, God never gives up. Right? And this, this lesson isn't to say, well, we can just hold off and God's always going to be there. Right? This idea is that God is constantly pursuing us. And so for us, the takeaway from that is God is always there. God is always wanting relationship with you. God is always trying to call you back to himself. But it's not so to say that you've got all that time to just do what you want and then eventually you can go back to God. It's that God is pursuing you for relationship now, for the best life possible now. Right? And so God continues to persevere, to pursue his people. And the main way in which he do, does this is through the prophets. Okay? And as we read through Kings, we hear of prophets who, who come like Elijah and Elisha, and, and they're uh, prophets whose messages are uh, recorded in the book of Kings and Chronicles. But then we've also got books of the Bible that are prophets themselves, Amos, Hosea, Micah, um, all, these, all these kind of prophets. And so as God speaks to his people through the prophets, what's the, what is a prophet? A prophet isn't uh, what I used to imagine a prophet as. A prophet is someone who could see the future and would come in and tell you what was going to happen in the future. And, and there's an aspect of that within, um, within the prophets. The prophet's main role was to call the people back to covenant faithfulness. Remember, the major market in the people of God's life to this point was the covenant, was the law, and was that promise that they had made to God to, uh, and that God had made to them, that he would be their God and they would be his people, and he would look after them and be with them forever. And the covenant promises of multiplication, of multiplying the number of their people, like the grains of sand on the beach, um, and uh, again, David saying his kingdom would be an eternal kingdom. These covenants keep coming and coming. And so God, the prophets remind the people to be faithful to God's covenant. And the call is always within reference with what God has done for you. That's, that's always the call of the prophets. Remember what God has done. Remember how he saved you from the hands of the Egyptians. Remember how he led you through the wilderness wanderings. Remember how he conquered the nations and the tribes who were in the land before you. Remember how God went and prepared a place for you that was overflowing with milk and honey. Remember what God has done for you. Remember, remember. And the, the lesson for us as well is remember what God has done for you. 
The God that we worship isn't a God who's an abstract idea, who's far away, who isn't involved in our lives or doesn't have anything to do with the history of this world. We worship a God who is deeply involved in our lives, who is deeply involved in the history of our world, and who has done so much for us. And so just like the people of Israel, the call on our lives and the the call that we have to remember day by day is what has God done for you? Remember what God has done for you. And the ultimate remembrance of that for us as followers of Jesus Christ is the cross. Remember that God so loved the world that He sent, He gave His Son for you. Remember that in history, 2,000 years ago, God died for you. Remember that God has actually done something tangibly, physically, in history, for you. And that is what we live in light of. But not just that Jesus died, that he rose again. And that is the evidence for what God has done. So they call the people back. They constantly call, remember, remember, remember what God has done for you. And they do this in often shocking ways. Uh, We heard from the book of Amos. Amos was written or went to the people of the northern kingdom uh, in the 8th century BC. And the 8th century BC was a time that wasn't unlike our own time. Uh, There were superpowers in the world that were vying for dominance. We have Assyria, we've got Babylon, we've got Egypt. Um, There's a time of abundance in Israel where uh, technology and Fashion is at a height where there's wealth galore. Uh, People are living, uh, they have combs made out of ivory. In uh, Amos, he says, um, talking to the woman of of Israel, who calls them, you cows of Bashan, um, which is half compliment and half not compliment because these cows of Bashan were known to be these um, big, healthy bulls um, that were just you know, the best kind of bulls and cows that you could have. And so there's this idea that, um, you know, back in the ancient world, being, being bigger, larger, um, was a sign that you were wealthy um, and that you could afford um, all this food and, um, and could live in opulence. And so he, he, calls, them, um, he, he calls them out for their opulent living. Um, they're living in these big mansions. They've done excavations in archaeology in um, Samaria, um, and they've seen just the extravagant wealth that there was in there. And so as Amos comes to the people, we heard um, Lorraine read from Amos. Um, at the beginning, he says, the Lord stands and roars like a lion. And this idea of judgment going out upon the nations. And then uh, in Amos chapter 1 and 2, we hear um, all of these judgments over six nations that surround the people of Israel. Um, he goes through the, the people of Gaza, the people of Tyre, and the people of Sidon. He says to the Amorites, and he's got this little formula that he says, for three transgressions and for four I will not withhold my punishment from you. And as Amos is preaching in the northern kingdom, as he's calling out judgment on these nations, you can hear the people of Israel going, yes, yes, God's going to judge them. And we hear the Amorites, for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke my punishment. And because they've done hideous things, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead so they could enlarge their borders. For three transgressions and four against Moab, I will not revoke the punishment because they burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. 
And you can hear them, can't you, going, yes, these are horrible, terrible people. Listen to the atrocities that they have done. And then Amos says, for three transgressions and four against Judah. And you can imagine the people going, oh, that's a bit closer to home. Aren't, Aren't they kind of some of us? Oh, they split off, those dirty Judeans. Ugh. Yes, for three transgressions and four, I'll punishment, punish them for their unfaithfulness to the law of the Lords and law of the Lord. And the Israelites are going, yes, punish the, the people of Judah. And then he turns to the people and says, and you, people of Israel, for three transgressions and four, I will not revoke my punishment because you sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the heads of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl that my holy name is profaned and lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. You see how shocking Amos's message would be to these people. He's turning to the nation, 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 and then you. You are unfaithful to the Lord. You have forsaken his covenant. Repent. And the the obvious takeaway that I got from this is as we continue on through the story and as we come to to the church and to ourselves. How ready are we to hear someone say, and you? And we're God's people. And we're called to live as God's people in the way that Jesus has shown us, in the way that is revealed in the righteousness of God through his moral law in the Old Testament. And we live in a world where calling someone out isn't, isn't done. It's not the right thing to do. It's, it's shaming them. You can't shame someone, can you? Are we ready to hear the call of God for us to repent? How ready are we? Because God's messengers weren't afraid to to hold back and call people out. Later on in chapter 8 in Amos, uh, he, we hear again of all that these people are doing with their religion, but then how they're failing to live out the law of God in their lives. Religion was just something that they did. It was really just an add-on to their lives. They'd go and worship, and he says they cannot wait for the Sabbath to be over so they can go out and start making money again. And then he says, but you use false weights on your balances. You use false bottoms on the measures that you weigh grain out with. You mix the chaff with the grain so that, you can, so that people can purchase substandard grain and you can pad out the supply of grain that you've got, but you make them pay ridiculous amounts of prices. You're using your religion not for the glorification of God and the worship of God, but as an excuse 
to increase your wealth and to trample the poor and ignore the law of God and the purpose. Hosea, who also prophesies and is sent to the people in the 8th century, uh, is told to um, prophesy to the northern kingdom in a powerful way. He compares Israel to, to a wife who has become a prostitute, and yet her husband cannot give up on her. He agonizes over her and longs for her to return to him and to be faithful, a faithful spouse. In this, the horror of adultery becomes a metaphor for what Israel is committing against the Lord. Hosea's children also are given names that evoke this miserable state of Israel. Ruhamah, not loved. Loamai, not my people. Jezreel, God sows. This idea that God is sowing punishment for the unfaithful people. These names are a startling, startling rebuke to Israel and a call to return to the faithfulness of the husband who loves them. The prophets were confronting. Are we, away, are we prepared to hear the rebuke of God in our lives? Has my normal way of doing things as a Christian become so ingrained in who I am that I can't hear a criticism of it, that I can't hear God speak into me, into my life, into my relationship with him, and say, hey, you need to change this. Hey, you're getting a bit arrogant in the way that you're treating my word. Hey, you're... You're judging people with standards that you're not even using for yourself. Are we prepared to hear God's judgment on us and repent? And the good thing is that, that God does this in the good times, not just in the times of crisis. We hear, as I set up there, this time in Israel's life in this 8th century BC was a time of wealth and prosperity and peace. And that's when God sent these prophets. But it's also the hardest for them as well, because they see this wealth and this abundance, and they think, well, well everything's fine. God's clearly blessing us. God sends messages to us. God allows us the opportunity to repent in the good times, not just when things go wrong. He's the fence at the top, not the, also the ambulance at the bottom. And for us as a church, I thought about this. Things are going well here at GPC. And so, so the message for us in times uh, might, might be, well, are we getting things sorted? Are we getting things sorted uh, in, in, the, in how we run our church and in, in what we prioritize? Is the culture of GPC right? Are those in need being looked after? Is God all you need? Are you ensuring that the gospel is being preached? Is worldly praise your mission? What energizes your mission? Is self-improvement for the sake of your own glorification? Is that what you're after? Or do we really do it with a heart to see God glorified? Are we holding on to a false idol and using God to achieve other means? Are we giving our best to God to see people saved or to make ourselves 
feel good about our ministry. If we are passionate about the holiness of God and upholding the righteousness of his people, we will continue to reflect upon ourselves and to repent of those things that we know God is calling us to repent of. Are we willing to hear what God is saying to us as individuals and as a church? skip forward to the New Testament we see the greatest prophet John the Baptist John the Baptist lost his head because he called King Herod out for divorcing his wife and marrying the wife of his brother Philip John the Baptist was calling the people of God back to covenant faithfulness John the Baptist was preparing people to see God. John the Baptist was calling people to repentance to see Jesus. The way to see Jesus is the way of repentance. 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's never no way out with God. There's always a way out. Repentance doesn't lead to condemnation. Repentance leads to life. And Amos, Amos chapter 9, this is talked about as a remnant. God will save a remnant of faithful in Israel. In John chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, coming just after the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of his only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. The call to repentance is not for condemnation. The call is to come into the light that we might receive a life, receive life from Jesus Christ. Are we sitting on things in our lives that we need to repent of? Are we sitting 
with something burning in our hearts or deep in our conscience that we need to deal with, that you need to deal with. I know when I was young, I used to sit in church week after week fearing that God would somehow supernaturally tell the speaker or the pastor my personal struggles and the things that I needed to repent of. But I was also secretly hoping that he would because I wanted to step into the light. I wanted to repent and to know that faithfulness and justice of God, that my sins were forgiven, and that I could walk in the light, that I could walk in freedom, that I could hear the call of God's prophets to turn to him and be faithful to him once more. There's something on your heart that you need to repent of this morning. I urge you to come forward at the end of the service for prayer. In fact, I think we could stand and, and sing our um, last song now, actually. Um, and as we, as we all stand together, I wonder if uh, those who are on prayer ministry might want to come forward. I'm not sure who that is. John and Marty, do you guys want to come forward? Um, We all stand together as we begin to sing our song. And um, if there is something on your heart that you need prayer for, if there is something that you need to do some work with God for, to get out the way between you and God so that you can step into that light, so that you can have that relationship uh, clear and free once again, uh, come forward either during the last song or, um, or after the service is finished. Um, but please re receive prayer. Uh, I'm here to pray, John, Marty, Becky here to pray as well. Um, yeah, but can I pray as we, as we finish off? Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your faithfulness to us, that you never give up, that you never leave us nor forsake us. And Lord, that when we do come to you, you are faithful and just to forgive our sins. And so, Lord, uh, we turn to you once more this morning. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Bless us. Lord, may our lives be praised to you. In your name we pray. Amen.